Thank you, Tammy, for leading us in prayer this morning. Well, this is normally the time in our service where we would dismiss our kiddos uh, who are third grade and under, but they get to stay in here with us for big church this morning. Um, on the third Sunday of every month, as we uh, gather, we also share communion. And so after the sermon this morning, we'll be doing that as well. Uh, but if you're a guest with us, my name is Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're glad to have you uh, with us today. Um, there's a guest card probably somewhere around you on a, in a chair. If you'd like to fill one of those out and drop it in the kiosk on your way out in the box back there, we'd love to connect with you, pray for you, uh, answer any questions that you may have about our church. Uh, we're in a series of messages right now entitled Happily Ever After. And we've been looking at the second advent of Christ. Normally during the season leading up to Christmas, we reflect on the first advent of Jesus. Uh, his first arrival as an infant, uh, as, a, as, a, as a baby conceived in the womb of Mary and an infant in a manger. Uh, and the stories of Jesus' birth. But here, this Christmas, we're looking forward to the second advent, the second arrival of Jesus. So we've been spending some time in the book of Revelation, particularly the end of the book of Revelation. And getting this picture of what we believe as Christians will be our never-ending happy ending, which is coming one day upon the return of Christ. And so this morning we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 to 21. We'll read the rest of the chapter together this morning and come back and unpack it. Revelation chapter 22, beginning in verse 6, uh, John writes these words. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the Spirit of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. 
Amen. And this is God's Word. I remember uh, as a young adult, whenever my parents were transferring to me the title of a small Nissan hardbody pickup truck that was standard cab, right? Standard transmission on the floor with the clutch, five speed and all, okay? And they'd purchased that truck for me uh, whenever I was uh, uh, going into my freshman year of college. And they, when they paid off that truck, uh, it was about the time that I was graduating from college, and they uh, transferred the title of that truck into my name. And when they transferred the title of that truck into my name, uh, my dad went, and I went to a notary public. Right? And we walked into their office, uh, and they drew up the, the bill of sale or act of donation paperwork, uh, and they filled out what they, we filled out what we needed to fill out, and we signed on the dotted line, and that notary who witnessed those signatures stamped or embossed with their seal that paperwork, ensuring that that document was authentic, that it had been witnessed by a legal representative who was... Uh, able to witness the signing of that document. And there have been few occasions in my life where I've had to visit a notary public once again. But a notary public, those of you, some of you are one, maybe. Some of you know one. Some of you have been to one. But essentially, they are a commissioned official who serves as an impartial witness to the signing of legal documents. Oftentimes, these types of documents are like real estate deeds and the buying or selling potentially of a home, or they are wills or trusts or powers of attorney that may need to be drawn up in order to be able to act on someone's behalf, or a bill of sale, or other official transactional documents. And the main reason that you utilize someone who is a notary is to prevent fraud, is to prevent someone from drawing up a bill of sale, signing your name fraudulently and their name, and saying, no, they agreed to sell me this $5 million property for $1, right? And so I have legal documentation of it right here. But the notary, right, you have to go in, show your identification. You both have to be present, and you both have to sign so they can authenticate the document and prevent fraudulent activity. And listen, church, I want to tell you this morning that we live in an age, in fact, every age in church history, in which there is a need for a notarized witness. A notarized witness. And that's one of the themes that runs through these verses in Revelation 22 is that theme. That there is an authentication of the witness that John has received. The visions that he's seen. The things that have been revealed to him. The other theme that runs through these verses is the nearness of Jesus' return. And we'll look at that next Sunday, Christmas morning, for those of you who venture out in your pajamas and join us for worship. But this morning, we want to consider... How this angel, this messenger through John authenticates or notarizes the witness that John receives. And to do that, we want to look at the two reasons we need this kind of authentication. And I believe we see both of them here in this text. And the first one is this. First reason we need this kind of authentication is because of the prevalence and presence of spiritual fraud. Look, in verses 18 and 19, 
we find a sober warning on the, on the lips of Jesus himself. It says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now that word I warn literally translated means I testify. And it brings, it calls to mind a very strong kind of legal framework or connotation. Producing this courtroom atmosphere where you have legal testimony that's being given. And essentially the reason John I believe employs this word, Jesus uses this word here in the text is this. Is that there are false teachers circulating in Jesus' day who would want to massage or manipulate or hijack the visions that John had received for their own purposes. And so essentially these false teachers are on trial for the sin of falsehood. You see the the warning against lying and falsehood show up in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 14 and chapter 16 and chapter 19 and again here in chapter 22 of the book of Revelation. In other words, there are individuals who would take and twist the visions, the meaning of the visions for their own purposes. And so the reason this warning is laid out is to stress the authenticity of these prophecies and to make certain that certain false teachers did not hijack them, tamper with them, or utilize them, manipulate them to their own end. And this kind of warning is not without precedence in the Scriptures, church. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, in the Moses sermon there, as he uh, repeats the law that God had given to his people, he says this, Do not add to what I command you, and do not subtract from it. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, further in Deuteronomy in chapter 12, we read that the Torah must be accepted as God has revealed it. So that we can't just, we, we, can't, we, we, we can't manipulate it, we can't massage it, we can't change it for our own ends. It must be obeyed. And as in Deuteronomy, Christ here in Revelation is warning that the false teachers, that they not dare distort God's intended meaning by adding their own teaching to it or removing truths from it. Now listen, let me just say something real quick. These verses perhaps at times have been misused misused or misread to denigrate any theological perspective that differs from the one that we prefer. Okay? So, for example, somebody's view on the millennium, right? Or somebody's view on the rapture. Like, if you don't agree with me on these things, then you're adding to or subtracting from the book. But listen, a false teacher is not just somebody who has a different theological perspective that's under the broad umbrella of Christian orthodoxy. Rather, a false teacher is someone who restructures the Christian faith and introduces or injects heresy. Views that run counter to the central doctrines of the Christian faith and erode or destroy the nucleus of God's revelation. That's what a false teacher is. And when you look at the warnings that come to them, they are sober and serious warnings. Essentially, they are similar to the covenant curses you find in Deuteronomy chapter 29. Because what God says through John here in Revelation 22 is this, is that those who add false material to the revelation, they will have something added to them. 
What will be added to them will be the plagues that are described in the book, right? In the scroll of Revelation. So you add something to it, something's going to be added to you. You will be treated as the unbelievers or as the wicked are treated as they have the plagues fall upon them. And then he says, for those who subtract something from it, if you take something away from it, he says, God will take something away from you, your share of the tree of life, and that you will experience the second death in the lake of fire for all of eternity. That's a serious warning. The first deals with earthly judgments, the second with eternal judgment as a warning against what has historically been known as apostasy, walking away from the faith. That has been once for all delivered to the saints and twisting and distorting God's revelation to such a degree that what you have left is something, but it's not Christianity. It's a different religion. And the readers are warned that deliberately distorting God's truth, denying central doctrines is equal to apostasy. So what John tells us is this. In other words, this book, these visions... This prophecy is not like a book of recipes. I know some of you have those at home. We have those at home, right? Now, recipes come to us from all sorts of places, don't they? Some of them are secret family recipes. Some of you have some of those. I don't have any of those, right? Recipes that have been handed down from generation to generation to generation. My wife has some of those that my mother has given to her, but she dare not give them to me. But recipes right, that we have in a cookbook or in a Rolodex or that maybe you found last night on the internet, okay, that has now become your secret family recipe that you inherited or stole from someone else who posted it on their website or on their blog. But recipes essentially work this way, right? You collect all the ingredients. And perhaps whenever you're trying to make a recipe, you're looking through the pantry and you go, what do I have in here, right? Maybe I'm going to, maybe I leave something out because I don't have it and I don't feel like running to the store because it's 30 degrees outside. So I'm going to leave it out. Or maybe I think, hey, this recipe that's been passed down for generations, it would taste better if I put this in, right? Yeah, anything tastes better with bacon, doesn't it? Okay, and so you put bacon in a chocolate pie, it'll make the chocolate pie even better. Okay, so I'm going to put something in, or I'm going to take something out, or I don't have this particular ingredient, so I will substitute it with this ingredient that I do have in order to fill out the recipe. Right, that's how recipes work. So if you come to my house, or I come to your house, and you didn't have all the ingredients that you needed, maybe you left some things out, maybe you added some things in, maybe you substituted some things. But when it comes to God's revelation, John says, it don't work like that. It's not like a book of recipes. You can add a little bit of this here, or you can take a little bit of this away, or you can substitute something that's more palatable and enjoyable for you for something that is less palatable or enjoyable in a given particular culture or during a given particular generation. It's not like a recipe, and that's why there's this sober warning about this addition or subtraction. Right? There is the presence of spiritual fraud, and so that witness must be authenticated. In addition, one of the ways you can identify spiritual fraud is by considering who the pastor or teacher is pointing you to. Are they pointing you to our triune God or are they pointing you to themselves? 
Listen, in verses 8 and 9, John tells us that it was indeed he who received this revelation. He's the one who saw the visions. He's the one who heard the pronouncements. And when he did, he was so overwhelmed that he fell to his knees And he begins to worship the angel, the messenger who had brought them to him, unintentionally committing the sin of idolatry. And the angel, maybe I like to fancifully think of this scene going on. The angel goes, right, slaps him across the face. It's not exactly what the text says, but I can imagine it. I'm adding to it. I'm sorry. (laughs) I need to repent. But the angel rebukes him and says, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Worship God. In other words, the messenger will not receive the glory for himself, but he points John to give glory to the only one for whom it is due, God himself. It's as if John is echoing the words of 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul writes to a church that's divided by all sorts of personalities who had pastored them. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Paul said, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. In other words, Paul says, listen, I love the way he describes himself in Apollos. He says, we are but servants. The same way the angel describes himself to John. I am but a servant. A servant just like you. A servant just like the prophets. A servant just like those who gave their life in faithfulness and fidelity to Jesus. Who were martyred for their faith as were recounted previously on the pages of this scroll in Revelation. I'm just like you. Do not worship me. Do not give me glory. Give it to God. Because only the one, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, the one who gives the growth is the one who gets the glory. All I did was plant. All I did was water. God gave the growth. We are but servants just like the angel. And in John's day, in Paul's day, and in our day, listen, there were a bunch of Mauis running around like little demigods. Some of you know who Maui is, okay? Some of you don't know who Maui is. Let me tell you who Maui is. Maui is one of the characters from the Disney show film Moana, okay? Moana's island is dying, and so she sets out to, to restore life to the very heart of the earth. But to do so, she seeks out Maui, right, who is a demigod, who is concerned about no one and nothing other than himself. All he can conceive of is hijacking anyone who seeks his help for their help and using them to get his magical fish hook back. So he could have his powers back and be the little demigod running around doing all the things that he wants to do. Right? This Maui character in Moana is completely contrary to the character of Moana. Moana is the young girl who sets off at great cost and risk and sacrifice of herself to restore life. All Maui can think is about himself while Moana is thinking about others. But listen, there are Mauis 
on platforms and in pulpits across the globe who would say, look at me, look at me, look at me. And one of the ways you can recognize a Maui, that you can recognize a demigod, is because they will say things like this. They will say things like, I am your spiritual covering. Or they will say things like, you can't get this word from anyone other than me. And I want you to know something this morning, church. If you ever hear those words come out of a pastor or teacher's mouth, you need to rebuke them and run as far and as fast as you possibly can in the other direction. Because what they're trying to do is establish a relationship in which you feel like you're dependent upon them to give you God's word, that you don't have a relationship with God yourself. Pastors and teachers should be faithful to God's word. You should rejoice under and flourish under their teaching. But listen, they are not your priest. Jesus is. He is your covering, not them. That's why the angel says, don't worship me. Worship God. And every faithful pastor or teacher Right, who would, who, who, would, who, who would preach an authenticated witness. He's not saying, look at me, but he's saying, look at him. So this vision that God gives to John is notarized with this sober warning by a messenger who redirects the recipient to God, not to themselves. It's a notary seal saying, God gets the glory, not me. And be warned not to add or subtract. The second reason that we need this type of authentication is this. And this is my last point. Some of you can't believe it. But it's this. Is that there are times in our lives and in biblical revelation where we receive promises that seem a little far-fetched. There's a thread that runs through the Bible of big and bold and beautiful promises or of prophecies and predictions that seem implausible, that seem near impossible to believe. Let me give you a couple of examples, one in the Old Testament, one in the New. In Genesis chapter 18, we find the story of Abraham and Sarah. And they're met by these three angelic messengers who tell Abraham one year from now, they're going to return. And when they return, Sarah is going to have a son. Now, Sarah is in the tent and she overhears this conversation. And we're told in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 11, we're given a little context from Moses. He says, now, Abraham and Sarah, they were not spring chickens. All right. They were not young pups. They were old and advanced in years. It says this, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. In other words, her cycle had stopped. The well had dried up. So Sarah, verse 12, laughs to herself, saying, after I am worn out. I didn't say that. She did. And my Lord is old. Shall I have this pleasure? And then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? 
Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied having laughed, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. But why does Sarah laugh at this prediction by this angelic messenger? It's because the prediction seems unbelievable to her, implausible to her, far-fetched, far-flung, near impossible. In Luke chapter 1, when Mary receives a visit from the angel Gabriel, who announces to her that she would conceive and be with child because she had found favor in the eyes of God, that she would call his name Jesus and that he would indeed be the long-awaited Messiah that the people of God had been longing for. In response, Mary says, How will this be since I am a virgin? Having never known a man, how could this possibly take place? She says, I'm old enough to know how things work, and that hasn't worked with me. And Gabriel says to her that the Holy Spirit would produce a miraculous conception in her womb. Not that she was miraculously conceived, but in her womb there would be a miraculous conception. And then he goes on to say, and behold... Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this in the sixth month with, he, or she, or with her who was called barren. So he says, she says to Mary, hey listen, your cousin Elizabeth, who also was old, who also was advanced in years, who also was barren, who also for whom the way of women had ceased to be, she is now six months pregnant. And then he says in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Why does Mary ask that question? Because that, that promise, that prediction seems so implausible, so unbelievable, near impossible. And then you get to Revelation chapters 21 and 22. And you see another angel messenger show up. Where God shows John the story of how human history would end. And God promises to bring about the end of all evil. The death of death. He promises his nearness like never before. And ends that the whole earth would become the holy of holies. Filled with his presence forever. That every nation, tribe and tongue will be there. And they will all be healed by the leaves from the tree of life. He reveals that the treasures of earth are but building materials in heaven. He shows that the future home of all who hope in Jesus is rock solid, secure, more secure than even Fort Knox. He shows us that Eden will be restored, that life will be abundant and never ending, that the curse of sin will no longer fall over the, any inhabitant of the holy city, that we will see God face to face, that his name will be on our foreheads, and that we will worship him forever. Another angelic messenger with what seems to be an implausible, unbelievable, near impossible promise. 
So how do we know that this never-ending, happy ending will come about? For something that seems so far-fetched and so far-reaching. Listen, we're reminded in this particular text that this message that the angel brings is both reliable and real. In verse 6, church, we're told that the words are trustworthy and true. They're trustworthy and true. Now, when someone that you know or some, something that you've experienced is trustworthy, what does that mean? Essentially, it means they're dependable. If someone in your life is trustworthy, that you can depend upon them when you need them, that they're going to show up, that they're going to be there that they're going to help, that they're going to take care of you. In other words, you can rely upon them. That's what it means for something to be trustworthy, that it is reliable. And listen, whenever something is true, our preteens could tell you this, because we've been talking about truth on Wednesday nights now for about five weeks, that what truth is, some of our preteens have it right on the tips of their tongues, that truth is what is real. That's what truth is. It's what is real. In, 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 our, in a world view of understanding who God is and who we are, truth is co- always corresponds to reality. And so when it, when, when, when the, 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 on, the, on the words of, of the page in Revelation chapter 22, verse 6, that these words are trustworthy, they are reliable, and they are true. They correspond to reality. In other words, you can depend on the fact that the way the real end of human history is going to be is what we've described here in the scroll. That's what it means. You cannot see it now that it is real and it will happen. Further down in verse 16, it is Jesus himself who says he has commissioned the testimony to be given by the angel to John. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. All throughout John's gospel, we, you, you read, you see the theme, the theme of I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. Here in another book that John has penned, you see Jesus reveal himself as another I am. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David, alluding to Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1, where it's a military metaphor centering on or revealing this divine warrior Messiah the descendant of David who would deliver God's people he would fight on their behalf and free them from their enemies and as David's offspring Jesus fulfills all the messianic hopes of the Messiah Second, he's the bright and morning star, recalling Revelation chapter 2, which stems from Numbers 24. I told you last week, if you're going to really understand the book of Revelation, you've got to know the Old Testament. In Numbers 24, verse 17, where there is a prophecy of a star that would come out of Jacob, which Israel un- long understood as a messianic prediction, which highlights this, Jesus is the warrior Messiah. 
and would stress his glory, his power over God's enemies to deliver God's people. In other words, Jesus says in Revelation 22, I am the source of this message. I commissioned the messenger and sent him with the testimony. And it is I who is going to come to his people who were distressed by Roman occupation and rule and martyrdom. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to set you free. I'm going to fight on your behalf. And I've sent this messenger to tell you the real end of the story. Take it to the bank. It's trustworthy. That's the second reason we need to understand the authentication of this witness. See, we need a notarized testimony because there's all sorts of spiritual frauds and we need a notarized testimony because sometimes the promises seem too good to be true so church this advent this christmas season may you Open the pages of the Bible. And as you do, may you not read it. May we not read it as something that seems too good to be true. But rather as something that is so good that it must be true. And listen, all of this as well, is secured by the first coming of the Lord Jesus. See, in His first coming, indeed, He did bring hope. As we celebrated the first Sunday, He did bring love, as we've celebrated. He did bring joy. He did bring peace for every heart that would rest in Him. See, my my hope and my prayer for the sermon this morning was not necessarily that you'd walk away with a bunch of practical things to apply, but rather with an impression on your soul. That the witness, the witness has been authenticated through God's revelation of Himself in His Son and in His Word. May we believe it. Tammy prayed for us earlier about those deep sighings that we experience, particularly in the loss of those that we love. I want to hold out to you this morning the real end of the story and say that as you sigh, hold fast and believe this day is coming. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we thank you for your revelation. We thank you for the authenticity of it. Father, I pray that you would help us discern truth from error. That our minds and hearts would not be captivated by those who would add truth or false false claims or would subtract truth 
from your revelation. That we'd be on guard against spiritual fraud. But also, Father, would you give us the grace to believe those things that seem even so far-fetched to be near impossible. Because your Son has revealed it. And your Son was our forerunner in it, who rose victorious over the grave. So that we may say, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your... Help us to believe that the real end of the story is what you revealed to us on the final pages of the book, of your word, of the Bible. And those words would be more true to us today, more real and reliable for us today than even the sweetest experiences we could have here on earth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, the reason that we can have this hope that this is the end of the story is because this warrior Messiah who's coming back to fight and deliver his people came the first time as a babe born in a manger to live a life that we could not live and die a death that we deserve to die. And this Sunday, we come to celebrate that through the Lord's table. You know, Jesus, before he goes to the cross, he gathers with his disciples in the upper room and they share their final meal together, the Last Supper. And at that supper, he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you. And he takes the cup and he blesses it and he passes it around and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it. And he says, as you do these things, do them in remembrance of me. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want to be very clear, we invite any Christian in the room this morning whether you're a member of this church or not, if you've repented of sin and placed your confidence in Christ, that you know that the hope of the end of the story is yours, not because of you, but because of Him, then come to the table and take of the bread and the cup with us. If you're not a Christian this morning, you've never repented of sin, you've never placed your confidence in Jesus, we invite you just to stay where you are and watch and act week after week as we keep holding high the name of Jesus our Messiah, our warrior king who will deliver us, who has died for us, so that one day that God might be gracious to give you new life as well and that you could come to the table as a brother or sister in Christ. But until then, just watch and witness as we reflect and rejoice in the first coming of our Lord and anticipate His second. So as the band leads us in song this morning, I invite you to stand. And as the Lord leads, come receive the elements today.